Welcome to the Speakeasy Noir Cast, a podcast discussing film noirs of yesterday and neo noirs of today. Each week, we're going to deliver a discussion of our analysis of classic noir films, and occasionally we'll interview up and coming directors and writers of new neo noir films, all mixed in with our unintelligible banter. Your hosts for the show, Jason D. Morris and Carly Street. Hey, Carly. How are you doing? I'm okay. Are you? Good. Yeah, good to, we should good apologize to, to the listeners for my headset situation. Why? Because they probably will have noticed that my audio is not as good because I'm not using my fancy, amazing microphone and haven't been for a few weeks. Oh, I'm I using see. a tel- like a headset, you know, if you're in a call center. Uh-huh. That one, yeah. Okay. Well, I think they can deal with that. Uh, <clears throat> I think uh, they only show up for you anyway. So uh, any audio quality um, that, uh, you know, that happens to be Carly's voice will, will work just perfectly, I think. You well, could be in I a wind like tunnel makes- or on a helicopter and I think that'd be <laughs> totally cool. Don't put me in a helicopter. No. <laughs> I feel like it makes me sound... I feel like these... I always thought I had a telephone voice. I actually think it's the headset that makes me sound a little bit nicer than I actually am. <laughs> so you think the low quality mic makes you sound better than your real voice and, and like if yeah, we were yeah. in front of each other? Because <laughs> when I was making little videos, I thought I sound a little bit like nicer. I mean, the audio is not great, but I actually sound like a bit more of a human being. So <laughs> I think you sound just fine in person. I don't think you got to worry about that. <laughs> <laughs> There's no squealing and wailing. <laughs> it cuts that out straight away. <laughs> yeah. I, I, you know, I haven't seen you in your native environment drunk. So that's the telltale for anybody. <laughs> oh my God. This is why I only have five friends. <laughs> <laughs> well, this, four now. I mean, had, hundreds had of people five. have seen me. Four pe- you know, thousands of people have seen me in that environment. I have four people still standing. One is my husband. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. <clears throat> well, what have you been up to recently? Anything uh, went on a, noteworthy? I went on a boat. A boat? Oh, cool. What kind of boat? I don't know. Some like weird little boat that was at the... <laughs> we went to Landudno and I went on the weird little tourist boat that takes you out like round the side and round. Like a little floaty thing, you know, that goes in the water. Why? One of them. I mean, it was not secure. Can I just say? I was expecting seatbelts or something. What if I fell in? Oh my God, it was scary, but I went on it. They might come back for you if you fall in. Might. (laughs) Nobody's coming back for me if I fall in the fucking Atlantic Ocean or whatever. You just see the crew, like counting how many people are on board. Uh, You know, we got 15 people. It's not worth going back for the one. Yeah, it's fine. And then Street's going, no, it's fine. She was never on the boat. (laughs) (laughs) Street Wendy, he would have jumped right in after you. 
he probably would have once he stopped taking pictures. Uh. Right. And you would survive and he wouldn't. That's the way it would go. It'd be like the Titanic, right? Yeah. Give me that piece <laughs> of floaty bloody wood. Right. <laughs> you drive. Yeah. <coughs> right. <laughs> well, that's exciting. Uh, we went on a boat um, last year to do like a whale watching thing. And uh, this was the second time that uh, Shawnee and I had done it, but we decided to force the kids. And when I say force, I don't use that term lightly. Uh, They did not want to go. And we made them go because they're getting older and we're like, we're never going to be able to do shit with you again. Get on the boat. <laughs> and uh, so I do stuff. That's so funny. <laughs> <laughs> right. They're just getting older and they don't want to do anything. So it's like, you know, you got to make them do stuff. So we get on there and like 15 minutes in, all four of us are getting seasick. <laughs> and this boat is like, it's, it's, it, it's a big, it's a big floaty dock. <laughs> And, uh, you know, the seats aren't comfortable, but there are seats. Um, and, uh, it it was hauling ass into the middle of the bay down in Monterey. And, uh, and, uh, we just, we were all just getting so sick. And the people that worked there were just like, just look at the horizon, look at the mountains over there and stare at the mountains. Don't stare at the water. And I'm like, this is not fucking working. And then they're passing out like ginger candy and stuff like that. And we're all like ready to puke. And, uh, you know, and then we see a, a you know, a, a part of a whale, I think, and, and some dolphins, I think was, you know, so it was, awesome. it wasn't uneventful, but yeah, it was, it was kind of cool, but everybody was sick and the kids hated it. <laughs> and they're like, never getting on a boat again. <laughs> oh my gosh. What a fun day out. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> but that's exciting. So, so what is the, uh, the boat you're on? What is it? Does it just tour like, uh, like, a, uh, I don't know. What is it? Tell me, tell me about this. So it like so it's on the beach and you have to queue up like a bunch of crazy tourists and then you queue, queue up so that's like a line these, you got to get into like a like a yeah, Disneyland line, get in okay. line. Okay. and then you have to go on these weird little ladders which aren't like they're not they're weird they come off the boat but they're not attached to the boat and they're not attached to like the ground so straight away <laughs> it's it's danger little floaty so ladders. you go over <laughs> you you sit down and then you you have some little like slidey seats that you can sit on. And then you toddle off past the Great Orm. Go off. You go past the promenade. So you can see all the promenade. Then you go past the Great Orm. Then you like swoop round, get a little bit of a taste of what it would be like to be on Deadly's Catch. And then I, as you I'm, get scared, they swing you back around. I gotta stop you because I don't. I only think I'm. I'm understanding like every other word. Like okay. swoop, swoop off, toddle, toddle about, and promenade. Or and I don't know what these words are. <laughs> So, I, I think you like. I think you left. You? you left the dock and you saw shit, right? <laughs> yeah, there was there was a lot of sea and a mountain. Cool. <laughs> no dolphins and whales either. and stuff. No, you have to pay like fifteen pounds to go and see the seals. Oh, okay. Five bucks. Yeah, that's not sh- bad. Yeah. That's not bad. And Street was like, "I'm not paying fifteen pounds in case you have a freak out and throw up." And I thought, yeah. well, I'm not paying fifteen pounds in case I have a freak out and flow up either. So <laughs> we, you know, we spent five pounds. Let's see how we are. For once in your life, you guys are on the same page. <laughs> and then next time, what we'll do is we'll splash out and we'll go and see some seals. And then I'll just kick off if we can't see seals because I'm scared because <laughs> we're on the boat for an hour instead of twenty minutes. <laughs> and we'll funny. have a great day. 
Nice. <laughs> but you guys didn't get seasick at all. No, I didn't. Nice. I was quite surprised. Yeah. I didn't. Yeah. Street loves it. He loves anything like that. And Lily's the same as him. So them two were like, oh, they were hanging over the side. It was disgusting. <laughs> they were hanging over the side of the boat with the phone trying to take a picture of the waves. And I just thought, phone, water, head, water, body, water. <laughs> no. I mean, you know, they could have been hanging over the side puking. So it's a good thing that it was just, you know, for photo ops. <laughs> True. Very true. Very true. Right. <laughs> well, cool. Good stuff. So let's get into tonight's drink, Carly. Uh, it's a uh, aptly appropriate. Is that like a double? That's, that's a, I think that's a double something. I'm, I'm saying the same thing <laughs> twice. <laughs> uh, this, <laughs> this drink has to do with the movie. How about that? Yay. All Yay. right. Yeah. So um, at the beginning of the movie, or not actually at the beginning, it's probably like 15 minutes into it. Um, our protagonist uh, has uh, a woman make him a drink. And this drink is called the horse's neck. Um, and I found, I'm not sure how they make it in the movie. I think he explains it to her how to make it, or she explains it to him or something. I can't remember. Um, I'd have to go back and check that out again, but um, maybe she's introducing it to her or vice versa. I can't remember. Do you remember? I don't remember. No, I do not remember. I've been okay. on a boat. Stuff has happened. <laughs> right. Well, somebody, uh, somebody makes it in the movie. Um, it's called the horse's neck and it's a pretty simple drink. Um, it's a classic drink as obviously it goes back to 1950s or probably beyond. Um, but there's a, a bit of a trick to it, um, that you don't see in, uh, a lot of cocktails. Um, and the key to this is a very long extended, uh, lemon peel, um, that you would use. So most of the time you would get like a little lemon spiral or something that would, you know, garnish your drink just on top. Well, what makes the horse's neck unique is that you have this really long lemon peel that goes all the way from the bottom of the drink all the way up to the top. And it's in one of those, um, long cylinder, um, not a highball glass, but, uh, just, uh, you know, those really, I can't think of what they're called at the moment, but the skinny sort of tall glasses. Um, oh, so it has okay. to be, yeah, it's gotta be like a pretty long lemon peel, uh, to make it, you know, proper. <clears throat> and I suppose that's sort of like the, where the neck, uh, the name comes from horse's neck, you know, it's, it's like a horse's mane, the long, like hair neck mane kind of thing. Um, but, um, <clears throat> uh, the drink itself is quite, simply made it. There's not really a whole lot to it. So, um, it's basically bourbon, ginger ale, and bitters. Um, and some people might prefer to use brandy. Um, but, um, and then you can also just kind of skip, uh, the alcohol if you want to and make a mocktail if you want, but I don't know why you'd want to do that because I mean, then it's just a ginger ale and bitters, right? But, um, I would put bourbon cause I mean, brandy's good too. I like both. Um, we got to convert Carly from gin. Um, but, uh, so a little bit of bourbon, uh, ginger ale bitters, um, and then your, uh, long lemon peel. <clears throat> um, and you would use two ounces of bourbon whiskey, uh, three to five ounces of ginger ale and two to three dashes of bitters. And it doesn't specify what bitters, maybe orange bitters. I'm not really sure. Um, but I think that would probably work pretty well. Um, so you would 
take the spiral of lemon um, and you put it in the, uh, oh, Collins glass. That's what it's called. Just popped into my head. The long cylinder glass. Anyways, <clears throat> off topic. On to- <laughs> the mind it's on, of Jason it's on topic, but. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Um, so you, you put it in the Collins glass, um, and you twist it around the inside and, uh, then you would fill the glass with ice cubes, pour in the bourbon and top it with the ginger ale. Um, you add a few dashes of bitters and you would stir well. Um, now there is a kind of a trick that I learned while I was researching this drink, um, to get the long, um, lemon peel. Now, a lot of times what you'll see in like a bar mixologist will use like this, um, uh, this sort of peeling knife, uh, to get a twist off of a, um, a lemon or orange or something like that. Um, it, but you know, usually you, you might only get like a couple inches of a, a peel doing that cause they're kind of thick or whatever. Um, but you could use a paring knife, um, or a channel knife. Um, and you start at the very tip at the very end of the lemon, and then you have to go in one fluid motion, but just kind of take your time. Um, to uh, cut it all the way along the lemon and make a th- little bit of a thinner strip than the the fatter strip that the uh, the typical uh, knife that a you know a bartender might use to to get a spiral. You're going to uh, be just... really mad at me when I say this, but the what? only what? thing that reminds me of is in Sleepless in Seattle when Meg Ryan's peeling an apple. And Tom Hanks is describing how his wife used to peel an apple in one go. <laughs> it's exactly what it is. I'll bet she would have been great at making a uh, horse's neck. <laughs> ah, there we go. <laughs> you welcome, Meg. <laughs> Sleepless in Seattle. Interesting. And that's funny because that movie kind of goes along with uh, with this movie a little bit. Um, so, yeah, anyways, without any more crap about peeling a lemon i guess <laughs> nobody gives a shit right <laughs> <laughs> um anyways so you can also do an alternative version of this uh which is kind of popular instead of using ginger ale you could use ginger beer which i think carly you hated right you don't like ginger beer um i like ginger beer well remember we had this conversation i like ginger joe with a certain spirit but I don't like ginger beer in general. Okay. All right. So gin, yeah. gin, I can't remember our conversations, honestly. So, well, I'm not <laughs> Ginger Joe I'd is block- like a ginger beer, yeah. just the UK version or some shit. Yeah. Yeah. I'd block, I'd block my conversation from your mind as well. Um, <laughs> it's, it's the bottle with the mustache. Okay. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. I, you with know, the ginger I, mustache, ginger Joe. Yeah. And then you pop it. Oh my God. I can't think. Ah, oh, Captain Morgan spiced rum. Ginger Spiced rum with ginger beer. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. Well, to be fair, I block out our conversations together as well. Like every, that's the reason why at the beginning of these podcasts, we, you know, I have to reacquaint myself with you. That's why I'm asking you questions, like trying to remember who the fuck is this person I'm talking to again. So yeah. don't feel bad. <laughs> I'm we, kidding. My, my, converse, my conversations are kind of like if, if a spidergram, like spider diagram was just and there was 15,000 variations, that would be my brain. <laughs> Curly is the Spider-Verse. I feel like I am. I was watching <laughs> Alice in... Alice Suda Lucky... Whatever the hell it is, one of the Alice in Wonderland films that's weird as crap. And I was watching it with Lily. Mm-hmm. And I was going, this is my brain on TV. 
<laughs> That's funny. I think the weirdest Alice in Wonderland has got to be the Tom Petty video. I, I can't think of the name of it. Um, uh, there's a Tom Petty video which is modeled after uh, Alice in Wonderland, and it is freaking weird. But yeah, gotta love Tom Petty; he's amazing. Anyway. So moving on. Um, so there you go. That's your horse's neck. We hope you guys enjoy it. Oh, did I already tell you the alternate version? Uh, ginger beer and a high proof uh, bourbon. So really strong bourbon and ginger beer instead. So that's it. Okay. And it's also kind of like a, um, a Moscow mule. Um, if uh, if you like those or a whiskey Moscow mule. I can't remember what they call those, but it's got a different kind of mule name. <laughs> uh, Kentucky mule, I think it's called. <laughs> Of the mule family. <laughs> yeah, it kicks your ass. Get kicked by ass mule. Anyway, spiraling. <laughs> On to tonight's movie. I hope you guys enjoy your horse's neck. And I think some of you guys that are noir fans probably can guess what the movie is. But um, if not, uh, make your drink and stick around for the trailer for tonight's film. Suspense in the night. Intrigue at dawn. Suspicion around the clock. Did you see Mr. Steele last night? Yes, as I came home, I saw him going to his apartment with a girl. That girl was murdered between one and two o'clock this morning. Humphrey Bogart with Gloria Graham in a lonely place. And Frank Lovejoy, Carl Benton Reed, Art Smith, Jeff Donnell, and Martha Stewart. I was a lonely one till you. What's he doing here? With or without his wife or tailing me. I've been looking for someone for a long time. I didn't know her name or where she lived. I'd never seen her before. And a girl was killed, and because of that, I found what I was looking for. First, you have to have enough imagination to visualize the crime. You're driving up the canyon. You put your right arm around her neck. You get to a lonely place in the road, and you begin to squeeze. You're an ex-GI. You know judo. You know how to kill a person. Go ahead, go ahead, brother. Squeeze harder. Suspense grows with every word. Every touch. Every kiss. You know Dix didn't do it. You saw him after the girl left. But Lochner has a different idea. He believes Dix could have done it. I left his office feeling as though he were trying to warn me. I came here because I wanted to say these things out loud and be laughed at. But you're not laughing. The Suspense Picture of the Year. Lock me in. So are you taking to Las Vegas? No, no, I know. Are you I packing didn't... to go on a honeymoon? Yes, of course. Are you packing to run away from me like you ran away from Mr. Baker? Mounting to a stunning surprise climax. Dick. In a Lonely Place, a Santana production. All 
All right. That was the trailer for tonight's movie, which is In a Lonely Place, a 1950s American film noir directed by Nicholas Ray and starring the infamous Humphrey Bogart and Gloria Graham. And it was produced by Bogart's Santana Productions. Um, the script was written by Andrew P. Soltz from Edmund H. North's adaption of Dorothy B. Hughes' 1947 novel of the same name. So many initials. Yeah, right. I, you know, and that's funny because I use my initial whenever I use like my, uh, I don't know what you would call it, stage name, I guess, or film name or whenever anything in like a credit. Um, and it's only because there's so many freaking Jason Morrises out there. And it's Tell not, me about know, it. I spend my life updating internetmoviedatabase.com. <laughs> I'm tagging the wrong bloody person. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh my, all my emails are is submission changed. <laughs> submission mm-hmm. done. Submission changed. Submission amended. Oh my God. <laughs> right. Yeah. So I think that's the reason why there's a lot of uh, initials and stuff, you know, going on. But, you know, I thought it was interesting. Um, I, I didn't know that this was from a novel until I started researching the film. Um, for this podcast. Um, and I'm, I'm a huge, huge fan of this movie. I'm just going to put that out up front. So you guys will probably be able to guess what my rating will be at the end, but maybe Carly will change my mind. Who knows? Spoiler Um, alert. (laughs) Um, but I didn't know that it came from a a book and now I'm super excited because I really want to read the book because I hear that it's, um, different. Um, I guess, uh, the feel is very similar, but, um, there's, uh, some dramatic changes between the film and the book. Um, and one thing to note is usually the uh, book author typically tends to not like the changes in a film. At least that's what, you know, we're kind of led to believe in most media and things like that. But apparently Dorothy Hughes um, didn't mind the changes and enjoyed the film and thought that it was actually um, Gloria Graham's best performance. Um, and, uh, yeah, we'll talk more about, uh, performances later on because, uh, both Humphrey Bogart and Gloria Graham are, are very much celebrated for their performances in this film. Um, but before we go on, we need to do, and now it's time for Carly's super famous in a nutshell synopsis. I'm so excited. <laughs> I'm always excited when we get to do the internet show. So. There's two. There's two. Okay. I have to concentrate for the first one because there's a lot of words. So. Oh. A captivatingly cynical, down-on-his-luck screenwriter is out of hits and quickly accused of murder. He doesn't care, though, as he punches and throttles almost every character he comes into contact with. <laughs> he doesn't care, though. <laughs> Which is true. <laughs> would, would you like to hear the um, the second? I would. Backup? I would love to hear the second. Okay. Yeah. So, the second backup is... There goes Wait, Dix the again. Second, the second backup? What? No, the second backup of the synopsis in a Oh, second backup. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. So that is, there goes dicks again. (laughs) (laughs) 
I love that one. <laughs> I felt like it had to have some sort of noise behind it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was pretty good too. Yeah. And that, that works for anybody that's seen the movie. Um, if you haven't seen the there movie, you're kind of like, huh? <laughs> but uh, <laughs> what is she talking about? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but that's that's perfect for uh, for somebody that's seen it, because yeah, he's a he's a bit of a loose cannon, this guy, um, and I I don't know, I I I really liked that about him because obviously this movie takes place right after World War II, and that's uh, a big part of his character. Um, he was a very celebrated, uh, screenwriter before world war two. And then the war happened and now he's back. Um, and I don't think that we really knew what it was called back then, but, um, obviously he's got some PTSD, um, stuff going on and what's definitely. Yeah. And what's kind of interesting is we've seen this before in several other noir films and, I think that they knew that soldiers were coming back kind of messed up, but they just didn't have a name for it. So we were really getting, um, I think some, um, real world sort of, um, POV of, of this happening, um, you know, during that time frame because they didn't have a, a name for it. They didn't know what to do about it. And so we got a lot of characters that were, um, portrayed, um, with these sort of afflictions in noir films particularly. Um, and I think that, uh, Dick's, Dick's is, the, or Bogart's character of Dick's in this film, um, portrays that in such a, I don't want to say classic kind of way, because really you feel for this guy, like you like him, like he's very likable in a lot of ways, but he has some massive anger issues but you can tell how he's very internalized and they never really come out and say that this is related to the war or like anything like that. But you can really, it's like this really nuanced kind of performance where um, I, I feel like he might not really have been this way before. Um, and now after the war, he, you know, it's, it's effective in a certain way. Maybe he's always sort of had that anger in him, but maybe not quite so fly off the handle because no, even but it's, after, it's kind of been unleashed. It's kind of been like acceptable for that to be a part of him. So now he can't put that part somewhere else. It's now a part of who he is. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and the, the interesting thing is, is that he is able to stop himself. Um, a few times in the film and you can relate that either to um, maybe his girlfriend stopping him or him stopping himself, whatever it might be, but he's able to kind of, you know, put the genie back in the bottle, so to speak um, and not step over the line, which is from what I understand, one of the major differences between the movie and the novel. Um, so I'm super excited to, to get a hold of the novel. Um, but, um, and that, that adds just more credibility to his character because a lot of people do struggle and we don't want to think of anybody, you know, with PTSD or, or even if just somebody in, in general just has anger issues, it's not necessarily that they're a bad person, but you know, they just might need help in some way. And I think in this time period, 
um, like in the fifties and, you know, after world war two and the forties, um, I think that that wasn't something that was, well, not only acceptable to ask for help, but there really wasn't help to be given. Um, and so it's always interesting when I see these films where they sort of demonstrate this, um, sort of, uh, PTSD sort of characters without really, you know, having a name for it or even knowing what they're doing exactly um, from that time period. Yeah, it's kind of interesting though because it's kind of like people, people kind of like if you've got anger issues or you're labeled with having anger issues, that's such a negative thing. Oh, he's got anger issues. She's got anger issues. It's always, it's so, and yeah, it's probably because, you know, situations have arisen, arisen and it's not been very pleasant. But to me, having an anger issue, it's an emotional issue. Whether you burst into tears every two minutes or you yell and scream every two minutes, mm-hmm. it kind of boils down to the same thing. It's just how your brain sort of lets you react. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's a great thing to bring up because I do think that everybody sort of interprets um, trauma differently. And I don't think that that's totally um, conscious. Uh, I think our, everybody's brain is just slightly wired a little bit differently. And, um, some people, like you said, might break down in tears. Other people might show that in anger, um, or violence, that sort of thing. And, um, yeah, it's, it's really the human sort of condition is very interesting in that respect. Yeah. Cause it's, I, cause I used to years ago before I had Lily, I used to just fly off the handle. Anything would just set me off. Mm-hmm. But then when I had Lily, I I like crying anger. So I could be absolutely raging at somebody to the point where I could quite happily pummel them into next week and not even be sorry. <laughs> my mind and my mind and my body is just like just cry and look pathetic. Like that. That's I can't explain it. I I would just I'd cry out of anger, not sadness. Hmm. And you know, that's, that's interesting because I, I think I became the the exact opposite. I think when I was younger, like I was able to really internalize any, any of that sort of like those elements. And then now that as I get older, I think I just become more fed up or, uh, I'm just not as good as covering it up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I have gotten worse at flying off the handle and it's, it's one of those things where it's like, it took me a lot of time and a lot of work with my wife in order to sort of figure out how to control that. Um, because when you're younger, you don't really have any sort of springboard or anybody to really kind of keep you in check per se. But then, you know, in my situation, like getting married and being with somebody for like 20 years or whatever, you have this constant, uh, you know, person in your life that you live with that, you know, it can help sort of balance you in a way. So it's taken me a long time to like me personally to sort of figure out how to keep that back in check. Um, you know, as to where, when I was younger, it was, it was just something completely different. And now that I'm older, it's like, screw the world. Fuck everybody. Grr, you know, <laughs> get off my lawn. <laughs> see, <laughs> see, I have that attitude, but then I'm like, okay, never mind. I'll just go and do it anyway. <laughs> But the problem is, at like, I feel like 
I don't lose my temp. I don't let myself lose my temper because when I do lose my temper, nobody can bring me back. Not even mm-hmm. street. When I yeah. when I go, and people don't believe me because I'm so kind of like placid. Even though I have little spurts, because my thing is sarky. I'll be sarky, and I'll make some sort of like sarcastic comment that makes you feel like shit to get my point across, <laughs> and I'll leave it there. So so that's that's kind of how I deal with it because if I actually lost my temper, if I knew that I was upsetting somebody, I would just carry on going. That would kind of fuel me more. Oh yeah, interesting. And it's only yeah, it's only ever happened once in my in my life. And it it would fuel me more and I'll just keep going because it's kind of like a dog with blood. I'll keep going because I know I've got you. So I'm not, and my brain is just, and my mouth is yakking and I have no control over what, and I know full well, this is not good. So I think that's why I'm, I've become so placid over the years because I don't ever want that little naughty demon to come out and be mean. And with that said, folks, we're currently looking for a new co-host for the Speakeasy Noir cast. Because <laughs> I'm going to kill Jason with a fork. <laughs> right. It'll happen someday. So if I go missing, folks, you know what happened. <laughs> he said it was OK. Um, <laughs> no, I feel you. I'm, I'm kind of the same way. But I um, yeah, I, I feel like uh, I've personally had to do a lot of work to sort of, um, you know, realize when I get that way in order to, uh, sort of, um, uh, not let it happen, you know? And, and sometimes it's like, it's difficult because you're kind of at odds with yourself and like, say for instance, I know we're getting kind of deep here, um, in the psychologically, you know, bullshit, but psychological bullshit. But, um, like if me and my wife got into a fight or something like that, sometimes like, you know, just, just leave me alone for 10 minutes. Just, just leave me alone. Let me calm down kind of thing. Okay. Just, just, and, and then I'm like, how come you don't ever come out and see if I'm okay? <laughs> it's like, she's like, cause he told me to leave you alone. I'm like, but, but and it's this constant, like that's conflicting so sort of thing. That's like, I'm like that. You are like me. I will sit there and be like, I'm not interested. I don't want that. And it, the street will always go, do you want some tea? Do you want some food? Do you want to calm down? What would you like me to do? <laughs> I don't want anything, maybe. So we'll just sit in the other room because I've demanded he goes in the other room. And then I'll be like, oh, and I'm hungry and I've got to go to bed and you didn't make me any fucking food. And he's like, I offered to make you food. Oh, well, now you're offering to make me food. You should have known that I needed it. Ah, <laughs> uh, the wonders but of broken it- people. <laughs> But then again, that's the thing though with marriage, like because he used to fly off the handle all the time and I'd be the, the like calmer one being like, Sorry. roles completely reversed. <laughs> and he yeah. won't argue with me anymore. This is, he prides himself on this. And to be fair, to his credit, a hundred percent, because I, I would literally argue until I had no breath left in my body <laughs> that the sky wasn't blue if I had to. <laughs> <laughs> wrong or right right it's like doesn't matter don't care. <laughs> I, yeah i'm too involved i'm too invested I've, I've wasted too much time arguing i'm not backing down i don't care carly is to the death <laughs> yeah and he'll just look at me like you're being a prick i'm not talking to you come back when you've calmed down and that annoys me more yeah, you know, my wife does the same there, thing. Yeah. I will sit there stewing. But because I'm stewing, 
that will make my brain realize, actually, you are being an idiot. <laughs> and then I'll have to kind of like figure out my, not apology, but apology within a not apology. Right. Yeah. That's sort of like so graceful. Like, I, I'm I, not I wrong, but. <laughs> yeah. I recognize that the sky is blue, but it kind of wasn't because of you. It was kind of because I needed to get some air because you made me mad. So I went outside and kind of realized for myself. So would you like some chicken nuggets? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's <laughs> so funny. It's funny, not funny. <laughs> and then he should bless him. My husband just goes, okay. Would you like me to put them in the oven for you? Yes, please. I love you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So <laughs> In a Lonely Place is has or at least was at some point considered a lesser known uh, film of Bogart's work. However, um, over the past, you know, I don't know, 80 years or so, however old this film is now. Um, it's become more of a favorite of critics as well as uh, film fans. And uh, its reputation has grown quite a bit, um, as so as its uh, director, um, uh, Nicholas Ray. Uh, it's also um, regularly considered one of the best film noirs of all time um, on uh, Time's list of all time 100 movies list, as well as Slant Magazine's 100 Essential Films. Um, and the BBC uh, also ranks it in its top 100 greatest American films. Um, and so in, I was really surprised to know, because I mm -hmm. didn't realize that this wasn't actually that well received at the time. Yeah, you know, I, I I'm genuinely, not it, it sounds really silly, but I, I, I assumed being a Humphrey Bogart fan and a, a film mm -hmm. noir fan, you see it all the time. I didn't know that it's only recently that people have sort of reevaluated it. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I feel like um, from what I've read and researched, that's sort of like some places I read, it wasn't received well. Other places I, re I read that it was, it was, it was considered well, it just wasn't a huge film. And I think because maybe it was just kind of, well, Bogart was a star, right? And even though like noirs were a thing back then, there really wasn't a name for noirs either. They were just, something was happening in American culture as far as a film movement goes. And, you know, it, it didn't become film noir so much later. Um, and, you know, Bogart being a star, um, that having such a down ending in this film, I think sort of made it one of those probably equivalent to like today of a, like a thriller coming out isn't going to do as well as like a Marvel movie. You could have the best known, well, you know, well-known stars in, in a, a thriller film and it not be like super massively big, like say a new Spider-Man film. And I have a feeling that's kind of like what happened with this film is it had these big stars, but it was like a sort of quiet thriller, uh, so to speak, but it's really a, um, a romantic drama, you know, in a lot of ways um, that sort of, I wouldn't say flew under the radar because it didn't do bad, but it wasn't a massive hit. So I think that it was just sort of that sort of combination of elements that, um, made it sort of uh, just not as huge of a movie as it's become, 
And I think it's become so big because of the performances and the directing and this sort of human story. Um, it's very, for all of its sort of eccentricities to it, it's very grounded and real. And I think most people at one point or other sort of feel the same as one of these two characters. Yeah, I was going to say, you can either sympathize with a situation from Dix or you can sympathize with a situation from one of the characters around him. Because mm-hmm. you can even sympathize from Mildred. Everybody's sure. been that person that's been so excited, you know, and her, when she's doing the reenactment of the synopsis, that was fucking fabulous. Oh, Everybody's yeah. been there about something and somebody's just gone, yeah, not really that interested. Be quiet. <laughs> right. So it's like it, it, every little, even the cop, you know, his friend that he's like, oh, doesn't bloody phone mm-hmm. me. Doesn't care. Yeah, Everybody's it, been in that situation. His wife doesn't like him. Yeah, your mate's weird. Don't like it. Every yeah. single person can kind of relate to some particular moment or character in that film. Do you think it's because it wasn't very well placed in the history of Humphrey Bogart films? I, I don't know. The timing. I, I think that that's sort of, I think it's kind of part of it. I think it's less about uh, being placed in, amongst his, you know, catalog of films and more about just, just the, the style of the film. Um, because this isn't the type of film that's like a, an action piece or, uh, you know what I mean? It's like, it's again, like the best sort of equivalent I could say is like, think of, um, think of recently knives out, uh, right. That, that comes out and, we don't really have murder mysteries that come out in the theater anymore. Just like a sort of uh, character driven murder mystery, right? That just doesn't really happen anymore. So knives out comes out and we've got some, you know, huge, you know, cast member like Daniel Craig, you know, he's a huge star with um, James Bond and all that. And, uh, Yeah, I know, but it's still, it's like, he's, he's a big name. And then you have this movie that everybody is kind of looking at like, this movie is going to fail. Who wants to go see a murder? I mean, this is like TV stuff, right? But it was an amazing film and it did ended up doing really well, but it's still sort of that sort of black sheep where the, you know, the movie going experience was saturated with, um, a, a different style of film at the time, you know, um, whether it be, uh, you know, today with like, uh, superhero films or say, you know, in the eighties with horror films or, uh, whatever it might be, you know, historically noir type films have never really done great. Um, after they sort of got their name as noir, right. Um, back in the fifties, it's hard to say because, you know, they weren't known as noir, you know, there wasn't that genre didn't really exist. It was being in, you know, more or less invented at the time. I guess the um, thing is as well, it's, you know, you've got the, the treasure of whatever, I can't say. Yeah. yeah. Then you've got kind of like Key, Key Largo, you've uh-huh. got Knock on Any Door, Tokyo Joe. Then you've got In a Lonely Place. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of going against a little bit of like 
quite a few, I wouldn't say Key Largo is action, but you're going against stuff that has a little bit more high stakes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those were big movies. Yeah, and I think that's, that's probably place. the thing. In a Lonely Place is a very small movie as to where those were yeah. really big movies. Especially uh, Sarah Marjorie. They don't really have high stakes. The only thing he can, it sounds awful when I say it, the only thing he can kind of do is, is he going to strangle her? Whereas mm-hmm. with those other films, it's kind of, there was a little bit more, there was more characters, there was more danger. It was kind of like, well, if he solves this, is this going to happen? In a Lonely Place was very contained. It mm-hmm. was just yeah. that. Yeah, that's that's the yeah. that's kind of the brilliance like you of it. Said, because, more of a drama. Uh huh. Yeah, because because the stakes, like you're saying, were just their own personal stakes. It, it didn't affect really anybody else outside of their lives, um, except for maybe uh, his agent Mel. Um, you know, otherwise it didn't really affect. Oh, bloke! Else. He needed a bloody medal for putting up with him, didn't he? Right, yeah, and going back to what you say, where like where everybody kind of relates to one of these characters, I think that he's, I mean, he's, I think we've all had somebody in our lives that's always trying to sort of help, uh, for better or worse, and this guy is like knows Dick so well, knows his talent, knows, you know, the type of personality he is, knows that he's got issues and whatever, and it's knows like, his habits, yeah, yeah, is trying to keep him straight is there for him no matter what. Um, He's really like that sort of, and you know, unfortunately Dick sort of takes advantage of him in a lot of ways, but I think he knows he does. And he's, you know, not, he doesn't, I wouldn't say no, he knows that he takes advantage of him in a a negative way, knows that he does and wants to sort of be better, but just struggles with that kind of thing. Um, But um, I I just, I think that it really just had to do with the smaller aspect of the film opposed to bigger movies surrounding it. Um, people I think wanted to maybe see Bogart in a, you know, continue with the bigger films. But then again, this is from his Santana, um, you know, labels. So, you know, they don't have that kind of cash that the studios putting up, um, you know, and I think that's, that's the just, thing is as well. People don't like to see a reflection of themselves as much as much as they kind of like, I can really connect with this character and I, and I really kind of see them in me. Mm-hmm. They sometimes don't want to see the outcome of what they can resonate with. So maybe you know, that scared people as well. <coughs> yeah, you know, I think that that might be true because I think it's like it's one of those things where you secretly would like relates so much to a film or a character, but you don't want to tell anybody that, (laughs) right? Because like, well, that person's not a good person or whatever it might be or how it's perceived, you know? And I think that could be, uh, you know, a scenario. I I think you, you know, you, you have something there as far as that goes, that, that very well could be sort of part of it. Um, You know, it's not that it was uh, not received well, but it wasn't received openly well. Um, yeah. you know, Whereas now think... it's only in recent years that people have been able to kind of embrace mm-hmm. their flaws and their faults and be open yeah. about it and go, you know, this is who I am. This is the crap that's kind of wrong with me. Are you so right. happy to be on the journey with me? Yeah. And I think Whereas that's an then excellent... I can imagine it would be very clandestine, like, oh, no, no, we don't talk about that. 
Exactly. And I, I think that that's uh, a great reflection as to that time period and what was happening in film. Uh, and that's the reason why so many great noirs came out of that time period. Um, cause that was sort of what was happening. Um, and I think that's why, you know, these movies particularly have lasted and are continued to be celebrated and reflected upon. And, um, we're able to sort of pick apart those nuances and see them differently than, than how they were seen back then. Um, Do you know what? Is, I think there's a really great line and I can't mm-hmm. forgive me cause I can't quote the line, but it's something along the lines of he's exciting because he's abnormal. <laughs> somebody, yeah. somebody refers to him as that. And I just thought, Do you know what? That is just such a fantastic line. He's exciting because he's abnormal. Uh huh. Yeah. I, I, if I, he's exciting I because he's different. He's exciting because he doesn't conform. Yeah. And that just kind of like sums it up. Yeah. I, I think it was Brub, Brub, however you pronounce his name, uh, his detective. Yeah. Um, yeah. When he's that. talking to his wife, when yeah. she's obviously a little bit freaked out because, quite frankly, that scene yeah. where he's describing strangling somebody is fucking terrifying. Yeah, yeah. And you know, it's funny because, I mean, he's a writer you and it's like... You imagine having him in your living room. Good God, you and Shelley <laughs> have a dinner party and he turns up. <laughs> oh, well, you know. Oh, God, no. I know. I'd be like, get the fuck out. <laughs> no, you we were, you we were friends, like, but we're... <laughs> you'd be like, no. let me just get my camera. So <laughs> I, I tell you, I, I watch too many crime uh, documentaries these days and I'm fucking on high alert. <laughs> Hell no. Oh I'd be God. like, I'm like, get out of my house. I don't, I used to know you. I don't know you any longer. Leave. <laughs> you know? Don't, don't watch crime stuff. I do that when streets at work. Cause he has, yeah. he has a different job now. So if I'm at home on my own, I'm like, I, I sit and watch a crime channel and it's like uh-huh. all about home invasion. I am on fucking, I'm like MI5. Right. <laughs> as soon as a shadow goes past, I'm like, whoa. Yeah, I'm telling out. you. <laughs> yeah. Same here. So, yeah, I, you know, <laughs> I would not have reacted the same as him uh, today as I am uh, maybe, uh, you know, 10 years ago. <laughs> but uh <laughs> that was that was super terrifying and it was a great scene and um I actually had uh used that particular scene um for uh the millennium after the millennium documentary I was doing this there's this whole like half hour different opening to that documentary that we made um that's completely different than the current doc and I was trying to juxtapose the sort of noir sort of darkness that uh, millennium had um, and how it was extremely similar to the, you know, a lot of the films of the fifties. And I used that particular scene where he's describing that um, in the beginning of the, of the doc um, to kind of illustrate that. So it was kind of funny that you brought that scene up. That needs to be something that we do. <laughs> what, strangle somebody or what are no, we talking about? No, I mean not today. I'm a bit tired. So no strangulation <laughs> today. <laughs> oh, although it's kind of freaky. I did buy a lot of shoelaces the other day. Shoelaces and duct tape and <laughs> plastic no, bags and lie. <laughs> I, I do have access to them things. <laughs> but I just bought shoelaces. So for for a work incentive, I mean maybe a work incentive. 
I'm going to, I'm, yeah. I'm going to say I'm, I'm, I'm excited right now seeing the side of you that I'm all the way over here and you're all the way over there. <laughs> no offense. You'll be able to watch my trial on YouTube. Don't worry about right? it. It's I'm going to see you on, in five years, I'm going to see you on forensic files. <laughs> or in the next no, 48 I'm hours. Or, you're too good. <laughs> I watched Diagnosis Murder, love. I know. Don't worry. <laughs> right. Oh man. Um <clears throat> it's funny because I did watch an episode of uh I can't think of what it was, but it was uh Forensic Files or I, I don't know, maybe the new uh I don't know, I can't remember what show it was, but there was a guy who um planned a heist, a robbery from watching TV shows like Diagnosis Murder and Columbo and all that stuff. He would he would sit there and take notes from all these shows trying to figure out how not to get caught. And it damn near worked. <laughs> it was Holy it was cow. very interesting. I feel like yeah. I should be his pen pal. <laughs> well, he's in jail now, so <laughs> Yeah, so I can be his present pen pal. Listen, mate, this is what you did wrong. <laughs> so two. <laughs> Season seven. There you go. <laughs> oh boy. <clears throat> um, so uh back to the film. Um Again, this was Bogart Santana Productions um, that made this film. Uh, their first film was Knock on Any Door, which was 1949. So this this film came out just a year later. Um, it was also directed by um, uh, Nicholas Ray, and uh, it starred John Derrick. And John Derrick, uh, I don't I don't really know him. Um, I'm sure other people do, but I haven't seen any of his films that I'm aware of. He looks kind of like a, um, I don't know, Zorro or something like that. Like he's got the little pencil mustache and whatever in the photos I've seen. But um, he was originally considered for Steel. Uh, and um, because I guess Dix was supposed to be much younger in the, in the book. Um, but anyways, you know, Bogart ended up playing him. Um, and... Uh, Andrew Solt, who developed the screenplay um, with Robert Lord and with the director, uh, Ray, um, they they supposedly were trying to keep it very close to the source novel, but it came out extremely different with, I guess, um, Dix originally in the novel was supposed to be sort of chasing women and I don't, I wouldn't know. I don't know if he's like a womanizer. I haven't really read it or anything, but, um, from what I can understand, he, he was more of like a woman chaser, um, as to where in this film he, um, was kind of being chased by women, uh, for the coat check girl and then his new neighbor and, you know, whatnot. Um, so they sort of like tonally changed his persona, um, quite a bit, which I think worked pretty well. Um, and the differences that I'm seeing between the film and the novel is kind of similar to Nightmare Alley, um, to where I think that some of the tonal changes that were made between the original film and the Guillermo del Toro film um, kind of, in my opinion, sort of ruined the likability of the character. And I think um, 
having uh, made those changes for Dixon, these, you know, in this project opposed to the book, I think really helped the audience uh, relate to him more um, on, on certain levels um, and made him more likable. So I thought it was so interesting that apparently the uh, Lauren Bacall was supposed oh, yeah. to be in this film as well. And I think when you know that information and you watch the character, you go, oh, hell, yes. Uh-huh, yeah. I can see that, them two playing off each other. Yikes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, they're great together. I think Graham was great in it as well. Um, oh, definitely, I, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, there's, you know, there's certain, I guess, actresses or actors really that, you could just see playing a role um, just as well as somebody else. You know what I mean? It's like, it's sometimes it's really hard. And then other times it's like, I can't see anybody playing this, but that person. Um, but, no, but uh, I, yeah. I thought Gloria Graham was fantastic. Absolutely. Yeah, totally. And, and yeah. you know, that didn't happen um, because, because uh, the studio wouldn't loan her out. Because they were scared of uh, Santana Productions. They were worried that this independent studio would end up being the downfall of the major motion picture studios, um, wow. which is interesting. Yeah. Um, so that was sort of like, you know, I, I hate to bring up um, Miramax or the Weinstein Company, but there was, you know, from what I can tell, they were kind of the first, uh, you know, major independent player. Um, as, as far as independent films go, um, you know, and it didn't, it didn't really happen, you know? Um, however, I don't know if you, uh, you probably know this, but Santana has made a comeback, um, over the past 10 years and they started producing films again. Um, yes, the Bogart Estates, cause I watched yeah. that film that you recommended to me. Yeah. And you hated it, which. Well, yeah. I hated you cause you got a fucking hat. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 So I think that they made things like. How go in a circle? <laughs> I, I think that they've made like two or three films now. And White Orchid is the one that Carly's speaking of right now. But I, I recommend it. I think it's good. Carly just doesn't like female characters. <laughs> and also, I'm bitter that Jason has a Bogart <laughs> hat. <laughs> yeah. Other than that, it's all good. um so excuse me um there is a there is a claim out there that apparently after bogart read the script he loved it so much he wanted to make it without there being any revisions um and uh andrew saltz uh claims that the final cut of the film is actually very close to script however um there's there's some evidence out there from script notes um and i guess people you know that worked on the film that shows that there was only about 4 pages from the entire script that didn't have revisions and i thought that was pretty interesting and i think that's sort of like um that's kind of like a i think actors particularly they get so invested in their characters they sort of they sort of lose track of those minute details and that's okay i think that's a good thing um because they're focusing on what they need to do and i think that that's sometimes can be a a negative having 
uh, an actor that's also a producer being involved with the script and other aspects of a film because they need to focus on, you know, what they're there mainly to do, which is act. Yeah. And they're wearing too many hats. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I totally understand the sort of creative outlet and I, I get that. And I think that's definitely something that, you know, needs to be done and explored, but not at the same time. I don't, I don't think, I think that there's a very clear defined sort of, um, hat wearing thing going on going with that hat theme. Um, but a lot of times I, filmmakers want to do everything, you know, they want to be that Orson Welles kind of thing. There's just some sort of like, um, just attraction to it. And, uh, I just don't think that that's, you know, the best, you're not going to get the best movie that way. So I think that um, just, you know, whether it was Nicholas Ray or whoever allowing Bogart to kind of believe that, I think that was a great move because obviously that's not the case. You know, if only four pages out of a 140 page script uh, had no revisions, that's that those are some massive revisions, <laughs> you know? And a lot of times it would said that he would make the changes on the day of shooting. Um, so not a whole lot of, uh, um, I, well, I wouldn't say a whole lot of consideration or thought went into it because, you know, you never know. Maybe he could have been cons- considering so it for a though. long time. Mm-hmm. That's so weird because I've been watching a, a documentary about Star Trek that uh-huh. my boss actually put me on to. Talking about Dan. Star Trek too. No. Okay. So it's, so it's a whole documentary. It's called, oh my God, we've had this conversation three times about what it's called. I think it's called <laughs> Center Seat. Okay, and it's kind of like the whole history of Star Trek, and it's and one of the episodes is kind of like how they were making the first motion picture, and they had no no script. They were on set filming stuff, no script. I thought that was uh, the and second after, movie. After they'd filmed it, the script was coming down, and it was like shit. We need to redo this. We need to do that. We need to do this. So I can completely believe that that was kind of the case, because. Yeah. Yeah, that was the 80s and they were like, do you know what? Just stand on set and film some stuff and we'll, you know, we'll fire some stuff at you as and when we can. Right. Yeah. And I I, I thought that was uh, the second Star Trek movie, but I could be wrong. And then there's also um, famously um, Gladiator, the Ridley Scott film with Russell Crowe. That was sort of that way. They basically said that there was no script. Uh, I don't know how accurate or true that is, but I mean, there's a few... There's a few instances of that throughout Hollywood, you know, which I think is just crazy. Um, but you know, hey, whatever. <laughs> I, could, I don't think I could ever that. do that. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god! Can you imagine me and you having to film? A, oh, actually, to be fair, we did Dark Winter though. So yeah, but you know what? We we were we were <laughs> I mean, trying. We did have a script. We just kind of changed it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we were we were thoughtfully trying to change what we could for what you know what we had, but um, just to kind of on the fly, constantly on set, <laughs> not following the script or whatnot. That'd be very difficult for me, I think. Um, but who knows? I don't know. You know, I guess eat to each their own. <laughs> Um, Luis Brooks. I don't know who she is, but, um, I did read a little bit about her. She was a flapper. Um, she was, I believe a silent movie star or, um, vaudeville maybe. I can't really remember from the twenties and thirties. Um, and she wrote an essay on Humphrey Bogart 
And she felt that um, the role of Dixon Steele um, was the closest to the real Humphrey Bogart that she knew. And I think that's kind of crazy because, um, I mean, I, I wouldn't consider Dix a bad person, but he's definitely a broken person and he's, you know, he, he needs some help. And uh, I, I don't, I, it's hard to look at Humphrey Bogart that way, but again, you know, who, you know, this is coming from somebody that knew him. Um, but she wrote in this essay and I'm going to quote, um, before inertia set in, he played one fascinatingly complex character craftily directed by Nicholas Ray in a film whose title perfectly defined Humphrey's own isolation among people and a lonely place gave me a role Sorry, gave him a role that they could play with complexity because the character's pride in his art, his selfishness, his drunkenness, his lack of energy, stabbed with lightning strokes of violence, were shared equally by the real Bogart. Um, and that's God, what a that's such a wow strong, strong passage uh, passage there comparing Dix and and Bogart. Um and uh, I, I guess there is, there's also an incident that happened aboard the, the San, his, his boat was also called Santana. Um, there was an incident aboard Santana where apparently Lauren Bacall became extremely frightened of him because of some violent outburst that he had. Um, and I couldn't really figure out what that was. Uh, what happened or, or why or any of that kind of stuff. But um, so it sounds like, uh, you know, Bogart had his own, his own demons going on as well, which um, I can understand uh, him wanting to play this character. Um, yeah, and, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. So but maybe I don't this think, was. I don't think that anybody else really, you know, sometimes where you have films where it's kind of like, Oh, well, you could have put another actor in and it still would have been this good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you're like, yeah. with this film, it's very performance pendant. Yeah, that's just what we were talking about earlier so, between Gloria yeah. Graham and uh, Bacall. Like those, yeah. you know, so I could see other people playing that. Who else could you that, ever have imagined playing Dicks mm -mm. other nobody. than Humphrey Bogart? Yeah, nobody at the time. Who knows? But now, years later, and as many times as I've seen it, and I, uh, you know, having seen his other films, like there's, I, I couldn't, I couldn't imagine anybody else playing it. You know, I, no, I think it's, and, and I would struggle myself to be honest. Mm -hmm. Saying, I mean, maybe there's somebody out there that would have been fantastic, but I think I don't really think that there's any other actor that could have channeled was required mm -mm. yeah no like I, I, I totally well. agree with that mm -hmm. well as well as he did is what i'll say as well as he did um because you know we all know with characters some some kind of characters are written for people they're made for people some characters are indispensable you know you could slot somebody in that'd be the same thing uh -huh. Because there's all the elements that you're relying on. I do think with In a Lonely Place, it relies very much on him mm -hmm. and her and their relationship. 
and what comes from that. So I think it, I don't really genuinely don't think that anybody else could have done her role or his role, even Lauren Bacall, and I love her to pieces, but I, I don't even think perhaps if she did that character, I don't know whether it would have come across the same. Probably not. You know, probably not. I, I think no. that she could have. I think there would have been something because they were so connected. I feel like potentially that they, they, it wouldn't have quite, quite sat right. Hmm. Yeah. And I think that probably just comes from having seen her in the film already. Um, you know, I, I think that it would be different, but I think that she would have been pretty good in the film. Um, but I think Bacall was probably a bigger star. Um, I could be wrong on that, but I think she's probably more celebrated these days. Um, oh, yeah. But I, I think with this particular role, I think you needed somebody that wasn't Bogart on the call. Right. I agree. And like I think it, that it being works, so close. Yeah. It works for certain things and it's amazing. But I think for this particular story, if you'd have had Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall, I would I don't think they would have meshed in the way that would make you be invested or feel you know, feel certain things to his character and feel certain things to her character. I think it would have potentially not been as authentic, I think is potentially the word. And you know what, having you say that right now, I I kind of agree with you because I feel like probably their own real personalities would have, uh, or their own real uh, relationship dynamics probably would have come to the surface, which is different than what the characters are in the movie, with the exception of maybe Bogart's because of how closely related he's considered to this character. Um, but that, that potentially could have been a, a negative having her play that. Um, so yeah, good point. It is. Um, Ginger Rogers was also considered for, uh, the role of, uh, Laurel Gray, but, um, wow, really? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. Uh, and then, um, <coughs> um, Gloria Graham was uh, Nicholas Ray's wife at the time. And it's interesting uh, because they were not doing well in their relationship. And they ended up separating um, while they were shooting this movie. And even going as far as to um, uh, Graham having to sign a document stating that she will basically listen to Ray's direction and requests without giving him any shit, <laughs> more or less. Uh, oh my God, production. I would never sign a document like that. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, so I, I don't know exactly what was going through them, but it, it says in the air, it's kind of funny. Um, so, so Graham and Ray's marriage was starting to come apart during filming, right? So Graham was forced to sign this contract stipulating that, quote, my husband, Ray, shall be entitled to direct, control, advise, instruct, and even command my actions during the hours of 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. every day except for Sunday. I acknowledge that in every conceivable situation, his will and judgment shall be considered superior to mine and shall prevail, unquote. 
And Graham was forbidden to... sounds like a Captain America speech. Oh my God, man. No. Graham was also forbidden to nag, cajole, tease, or in any other feminine fashion, seek to distract or influence him. (laughs) Oh my God. I bet she had a battle of laughs on this fucking film. Jesus Christ. Poor yeah, woman. It's, it's pretty uh it's it's pretty drastic there but i mean who knows i mean maybe maybe she uh you know i mean you know you look at it from a creative perspective and nicholas ray is a great director and she's a great actress and sometimes you know conflicts arise and when you're in a relationship you know how to push people's buttons right so maybe that sort of strong language had to happen uh, so they weren't pushing each other's buttons, you know, during the film. Oh, yeah, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. To be fair, I mean, I'm a bit of a wind-up merchant. So unless they had some legal paperwork that was like, you're going to get sued. Okay. Maybe <laughs> I won't make that joke or be a pain in the arse today. Right. <laughs> exactly. I, I honestly think that's what it was. He even resorted to uh, sleeping in the dressing room instead of going home because their relationship was falling apart. Um, you know, and he would just, you know, tell people he was working on the script, um, you know, but really he was avoiding going home. Um, Oh, what a sweet talk. (laughs) See, I'm now emotionally invested in behind the scenes. Bloody hell. Right. (laughs) So my research says that it was generally, uh, positively reviewed. Um, or received uh, when it came out, particularly um, Bogart and Graham's performances. Um, but apparently because of the bleak ending, um, it, it was, you know, considered to not, I guess, uh, I guess people viewed it as being hard to market um, or to be um, to basically the audience being excited to go see it. Um, or how to market it because it was such a dark film, um, dark relationship wise. Right. Um, however, variety did write, um, a review for the film and it was a good review. And again, I'm going to, I'm all quotes today. <laughs> uh, variety says, uh, or wrote in a lonely place, uh, Humphrey Bogart has a sympathetic role though cast as one always ready to mix it with his dukes. He favors the underdog. In one instance, he virtually has a veteran brandy soaking character actor out of work on his very limited payroll. Director Nicholas Ray maintains nice suspense. Bogart is excellent. Gloria Graham as his romance also rates kudos. So I think that, I think at the time it wasn't, I think it was well received from a critical standpoint and maybe even an audience standpoint, but like we were saying before, maybe that was sort of that sort of closeted response. People didn't want to say why they liked it. They didn't want to really put their own personal perspective out there. Um, and that might've kept it from being uh, a huge film at the time. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think that, um, oh, I do, you know, I got one more thing. Uh, I thought was interesting. Uh, I don't know if you know the uh, group is the Smithereens, uh, but they uh, um, no. no? <laughs> um, it's an '80s band or group, I guess you say. Um, and they wrote a song uh, in 1986 called "In a Lonely Place," uh, 
um, from the album called Especially for You. Um, and it was inspired by the film, obviously. And the chorus of the film is comes from the famous uh, dialogue from the movie where they're driving in the car before he bashes in the guy's head with a rock. Um, and in this chorus, it says it's sort of like a, uh, you know, they've changed it a little bit, but it's pretty similar. But the chorus is, I was born the day I met you, lived a while when you loved me, died a little when we broke apart. Um, so I thought that was kind of interesting. I've never, I, I don't recall ever hearing this song before. I know who the smithereens are, but for whatever reason, uh, this song is not on my radar, but it is now. So I'm gonna have to go check it out. Yeah, me too. Right. <laughs> Um, so that's it for me, Carly. I think, uh, I think we've, uh, put this film through its paces. Um, and if you folks at home haven't noticed, uh, I absolutely adore this film. I think it's, uh, I think it's amazing. It's a, yeah, I just, I, I think everybody should, should check this film out. Um, I can understand how so it might happen you, everybody's cup of tea. You have but. to go first then. For okay, your rating. Absolutely. I will do that. I will, uh, I would love to. So, so, um, I think this is probably my absolute favorite Bogart performance, um, and film, uh, only rivaled with the big sleep, um, which I also love, um, as far as his performance and, and film in general. But this one is a little more close to my heart because I have a lot of similarities to Bogart's character Dix in this film, um, on a personal level. And, um, I, I think he plays it with such a nuance. Um, and there's so many little details in the script and the way that these characters play and react to one another, or in another case, don't react to one another. Um, that I think that um, it's just, it's, it's just a brilliant film. Um, and this is, this is my number two favorite film of all time. Uh, my first film being, um, Citizen Kane, which I know that's like a film student snobbish sort of number one film, but I mean, it just is what it is. Um, and in a lonely well, we place also my, love you, so it's fine. <laughs> and in a lonely place is my second and Indiana Jones and, uh, the Raiders of the Lost Ark is my third favorite film. Um, in case anybody was curious. <laughs> um, but, uh, I just think that this is, in my opinion, this is a perfect film. I, I wouldn't, change anything about this movie. You know what we didn't talk about Carly is that there was actually a alternate or an original ending to this film. Um, really? Yeah. So in the original script, um, she Dix actually strangles and kills her and That's he's, yeah. And he, and after he does that, he sits down on his typewriter and he finally, I don't know if you recall, but the, um, uh, the, um, the lyrics that I just quoted from the smithereens, the, you know, the, the, those, that passage from the film, he mentions something about not knowing where to place it in this script that he's writing. Well, he kills her and he figures out this goes at the end. So he writes the last page and those are the, that passage is the last is the end of the screenplay. And then after he finishes typing it, his, uh, his ex-military buddy um, shows up and arrests him for killing her. Oh um, my God, I love that ending so much more. Really? Because I, I don't personally. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I think it's so much darker. Um, 
having them look at each other and have to face this sort of idea of knowing he's not a murderer and yet still having gone through so much knowing that they can't be together. So there's See, like this, there's this of, power. I kind of like the idea though of him not being a murderer and then being sort of like pushed and manipulated into and pigeonholed into being one and kind of like conforming to what they wanted, even though he wasn't. Yeah, I just, I fully, I've, I'm fully against that. I, I think that there's much more power in this concept of um, all that outside pressure um, being forced upon them of to no fault of their own, really. Oh, well, I can't say no fault of their own because Dix is a hothead. Like he's, he, you know, he's got that violence in him, but he keeps it at bay or at least struggles to keep it at bay. And it's, it's this, I think it really goes back to the title of the film in a lonely place. Like there's nothing more lonely than that. Like he not being able to, I wouldn't say have what you want, but not being able to have that connection with this other person because of your history, like something so bad has happened between the two of you that you can't move forward. There's no, there's no possible way to move forward in that relationship. Even though you both love each other, you still love each other. Um, too much has happened. And I think that there's this real sadness and, um, darkness to that without the murder. I don't think she needed to die at all. I think that that, that made it even darker and even harder to accept um, with an ending where they had to look each other, know that he didn't kill anybody, but yet all of that, all of the circumstances involved um, created this, this, wall between them you know it almost pushed him to the edge and because of that there was no coming back like they literally passed their point of no return right See, at the very I kind end of like the idea of the fact, i kind of like the fact that the the darkness created a monster that wasn't yeah. necessarily there before yeah i think that's i think it's so nihilistic that i i i feel like we would lose our humanity i feel like we would lose that connection because otherwise you're, and I, I think Nicholas Ray made a, you know, I, I think he realized that because I think that part of this film working, you have to be able to identify with these people and that becomes fantasy yeah, unless, unless you're, yeah. unless you're a murderer, you know, unless, unless you're, you're wholly hundred percent capable of killing the person that you Another love. Human. Yeah. Yeah. That. I think that that takes that that identifiability out of it. I think I think you're able to identify. Was, was with, that in the the book, or was that just an ending for the script? I don't know, but um, that's something I do want to find out. Um, but yeah, I think that that takes away that identifiability away from it. I don't think that that's. Um, I think he made the right choice, changing that ending. And and from what I understand, they shot it. They shot that original ending and I haven't oh, seen yikes. it. I, I hope it's out there somewhere because I really would love to see it. Um, but they shot it and after he shot it, he just wasn't, he didn't feel right about it. So he kicked everybody off set 
except for um, uh, Gloria Graham and Bogart. And um, um, I think the guy that plays his agent, I can't remember exactly. Um, but, uh, and then they just reshot it on the fly. They just worked it out until, until that ending works. So that, that whole ending as in the film right now is completely ad-libbed and, and made just wow. by working with the actor and, the, you know, the director working with the actors. And I think that's, uh, I think that's brilliant, honestly. That's amazing in itself. Yeah. Um, so yeah, going back to my critique, I think that it's a perfect film and I think that was the right choice to change that ending. Um, but uh, I, I can't really say anything else about the film. I just think it's it's so it's so relatable on many levels. Anybody that's been into a volatile relationship or has had outside forces working against you in that sort of way, uh, even anybody that I you know has suffered PTSD or um, has you know any sort of you know issues of that sort. Um, or challenges of that short sort, I should say, um, I think can really find relatability to this film and, um, the characters nuances and, and how this sort of plays out. Um, it, it's one of those, it's one of those films that's so dark and relatable that it's hard to not enjoy it. If you've had those sort of, um, elements in your life. And again, it's just one of those types of movies where I don't think everybody's going to love this film because I don't think, I think it's only going to really work for those that have that sort of life experience. And I think other people might find it a little silly or implausible. Um, but who knows, maybe not, you know? So I give this 10 gens out of 10. You're up, Carly. Okay. So, actually, we need some sort of sound effect because I also give it 10 out of 10. All right. It's going to be applause. Yay. Yeah. Yay. We'll just do a fake sound effect. Woohoo. Yeah. Yeah. For exactly the same reason. Um, I did have a, a few gripes with it. Oh, I want to hear your gripes. Like, Tell me your gripes. Well, for, for, but yeah, but it's it's in context of it being a film noir. So, okay. for example, for a film noir, it's it's far too bright. Mm-hmm. It's too happy. Like that imagery is too happy and it's too bright and there's flowers and it's just, that doesn't work for me. However, the film itself does. Okay. And the film ticks every box like we've discussed. You know, your inner demons, showing them, accepting them, working with them, having people where you're being affected by them. I think it's a I think it's one of the most fabulous films that I've ever seen that deals wow. with human conflict and wow. deals with it well. Nice. And, you know, yeah. I, I really wanted to bring up your film, um, Intruder, and I meant to do that earlier when we were talking about PTSD, because there's a lot of similarities, um, even though that's a short film and it's very compressed, I think that you hit, a you know, you hit on a lot of, uh, topics in, uh, the intruder as this film does in terms of, uh, PTSD and sort of dealing with that. Um, obviously, you know, you didn't have the time to 
play it out in the same way, but, um, it's, you know, it's not without, you know, bringing up that there's, there's definite similarities there. Yeah. Cause it's, it's the whole thing with the intruder was kind of not knowing, not being able to know yourself and your surroundings and not mm-hmm. being able to trust your instinct. And I think that's the scariest thing that a person can one of sorry, one of the scariest things that a person can deal with is not being able to trust yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I feel like I mean I I, I don't have PTSD, so I, I can't comment on it. But from people that I've known and people that I've spoke to and things like that, um, their biggest fear is I can't trust myself. I can't trust my own mind. Right. Because, you know, if, for example, in The Intruder, a firework goes off. I feel like I've been transported in time right back to where I was, you know, six years ago in a moment. So I'm going to react in that moment how I need to. Right. Yeah, but then, I- you know, everybody else sees, well, you're not in that moment. You're in a shop. But that's that's the conflict. You're doing what your body's telling you to do, but it's not realistic to your environment. Yeah. And I think that's hard for somebody who doesn't experience that or doesn't have the knowledge um, to to understand it. It's kind of like an extension of your emotion. Mm -hmm. So if you get upset or you get sad or you get angry, you're reacting in that moment. But imagine if you were transported 10 years in the past, you know, two days ago you're still going to react the same way to how you feel in that moment because that's how your body feels and that's what your like instinct is it's just unfortunately the situation is different Mm -hmm. right yeah and that's where i think that that's uh these these your short film and this like really relates because it's the same thing he he struggles with that same aspect, even though it's sort of unspoken in this film, I, I think it's, I think it's pretty evident that that's where his violence and anger and, you know, that uncontrollable sort of like reactionary temper comes from. Um, Cause that's the same thing that we see in your film the intruder is like, it's not intentional. Um, but. Um, no, it it's, it's instinctual. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> and I think that's where a lot of people will look at like a person like Dix and be like, Oh, that guy's, he's, that's a bad person. He's violent. He's abusive, you know, that sort of thing. And it's like, well, those things are true. Um, he's also a good person. He also cares. He also understands and he is trying to deal with it and he needs help. And I think that's the position for a lot of people. Um, you know, and I think that unfortunately people that have those kind of issues can be written off, um, you know, in that, in that way. So anyway, um, yeah, we've, we've talked our audience's ear off and, uh, I know Carly, you got to get going. Um, so, uh, I, this is a, this is a double, this is a double 10 out of 10 gens day, which is awesome. Cause we don't get that very often here on the speakeasy. <laughs> Do we have but, a confetti sound effect that's like, <laughs> that's, that's more like, uh, it sounds like a Han Solo shooting. Uh, okay. Well, either or, I mean, are you happy or what? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Then pow, pow. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> I'll find something. <laughs>
<laughs> All right, folks, that's it. We hope you guys enjoy your horse's neck and you check out In a Lonely Place if you have not already. Um, it's a film, obviously, Carly and I both love, and we hope you guys do too. And until next time. Bye-bye. He's looking at you, kid. Thanks for joining us this week on the Speakeasy Noircast. Make sure to visit our website, resurrectionfilms.net, where you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or any of your favorite podcast apps so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, if you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. If you like the show, you might want to check out our book, The Dark Side of Acting Up and The Dark Side of Acting Up Volume 2, now available on Amazon. Or you can check out one of our films, also available on Amazon Prime. Be sure to tune in next week for another episode of the Speakeasy Noircast.